Hey there, you're listening to Past to Present, a social studies podcast by educators for you. We'll take a look at the middle school social studies standards taught in the state of Texas. Together, let's clarify some key concepts in history and think of ways to help students relate history to their everyday life. How are you doing, Lindsay? Doing good. How are you? Good. So you and I have kind of reflected on these past couple episodes and recognized that we've never introduced ourselves. No. We just started out by saying, hi, we're Lindsay and Kevin, and this is our podcast. Right. So I don't even know. What episode is this? Um, Five or six? Seven? It might be seven. Well, because right. one of them was my students. So does that count? Sure. Five or six or seven. One of those numbers. So who is Lindsay Stevens? Um, (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of corny. Yeah. Um, well, for those of you who don't know me personally, I, this is my seventh year in education. Mm -hmm. I'd love to say all seven years of those were in social studies, but no, one of them was in ELA, the worst year of my life. Yeah. But was that the content or the other, was it the content? The content's terrible. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it is. So anyway, um, and I've been teaching U.S. history, I guess now this is my fifth year. Yeah. I taught one year of Texas history, one year of ELA, and now five years. No, yeah. And then I also was an instructional coach for a year. That was fun. Right. Um, so so when, when was that? That was last year, right? Last year. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed it, but I just missed the kids. I missed the classroom. It's understandable. Um, you know, so... I uh, came back to the classroom, enjoying that. Like I said, the grading is a little bit rough, but you get used to it. Yeah. I have a young child. She's 18 months old now. She's She thinks she's older than she is. That's pretty standard. Yeah. And that's pretty much me. Nice. So, uh, what about you? Well, I'm Kevin LaFollette. I, oh, goodness gracious, I started teaching in 2002, so this is year 16. Stop. You started teaching in 2002? I know, right? What grade did you teach? I taught eighth grade. Yep, that was where I was. Um, I walked in and had I was a ACP teacher. I had never student taught. Oh no! Um, I apologize to those kids if they're listening. Um, yeah, I know. I have so many apologies to give. To- that's, that's normal, right? Like I think every teacher goes. My first year, I wish I could go back and apologize to those kids. Um, and for the most part, they don't know any different. But um, so most of that was teaching eighth grade. Uh, I taught. Uh, one year of sixth grade. What? Yeah. And I recognize that there's one problem with that is that sixth grade's full of sixth graders. Yep. And then I asked immediately and they bumped me up to a seven eight split in Katie and I taught Ooh. seven eight for a long time. Seven eight split is rough. It I w- guess it was good if you already knew the eighth grade content a uh, little bit. I was learning. Um I, I never worked with a real coherent team. So a lot of it was on my own. Um and probably some of that I carried over when people did try to reach out and work with the team. I just was so used to working on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I was coaching football. I was coaching basketball. I was coaching mm-hmm. track. You were married uh, at this time? I was married Bless at this time. Bless your wife. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But um, I love the eighth grade content. Yes, me too. Um, the split was nice too because I didn't have to hear myself over and over again because at that time I was the sage on the stage. And... Mm-hmm. Um, I've gra- I gradually moved away from that, eventually flipping my classroom altogether. Good for you. It was a mess, but it worked. I'm and lucky because I came into social studies 
and into education after that wave had already kind mm-hmm. of passed. I enjoyed it, and I would go back. If I went back in the classroom, I would incorporate parts of it. Yeah. But um, I just love the eighth grade content. Um, got to teach today with some eighth graders, and, uh, you know, they thought I was a sub until we, we had to come to an understanding <laughs> real quick that I was not the We don't call sub. them subs at my campus. What do y'all call them? Guest teachers. Guest teachers. I like that. Yeah. It's like a whole culture shift that we've been doing over the past couple of years. So does it work? Yeah. It really does help. Nice. I mean, it, I think it does. I don't know if. We haven't actually done research to see if it does, but I'm glad you got back into the classroom. Does it make you want to maybe become a te- like go back into go the back? classroom? Uh, there are days, yes, absolutely. Um, just a challenge. What, what do you do right now? Well, I'm asking that facetiously yeah, yeah, right. you know for I mean, our yeah. listeners because so I do know. I've been an instructional coach the last four years. Never really ever intended to get here. Four years. Yeah, this is my fourth year. It hasn't been four years. It has been. Uh, never intended to go into this position yeah. and just kind of. Got. Ended up there. Mm-hmm. Um, still get to coach. But it's... Um, That's lucky. It is lucky. It's pretty rare, actually. Yeah. So there are days when I think going back into the classroom would be really, really nice. Um, I, I, I like teaching. Um, but then there's challenges of this job. Yeah. Um, it's definitely different. It's a completely different role. I, I don't know where... I, I kind of... I don't. I'm not, I guess, ambitious enough to have... A goal of where I want to be at this point and that point. I'm just kind of going I don't know with if the that's flow. A lack of ambition or just a fact of you're just kind of taking it day by day. I think so, and I want to be good at this. Yeah. Um, you, you're, you're, to me, you're the type of person who likes to master things before you move to the next level. Right. I think that that's what I hope to, that's what I hope comes across. Yeah. So two weeks ago, we were both at TCSS. Was it two weeks already? Mm, pretty close. No, it was last Friday. It was a week and a half ago. Is that a week and a half? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I know, right? Yeah. TCSS. So, this is my fourth year to attend TCSS, I think. Nice. Yeah. Um, it was my first time to go to TCSS. I've actually been to NCSS, but never the, the state one. So, for those of you who don't know, TCSS is the Texas Council for Social Studies. Conference. Conference. And it's uh, it's usually held all over, you know, different city all over the state. Uh, next year it's going to be in Austin, but it's going to be held in uh, conjunction with NCSS, which is the National Council for Social Studies. And the difference is the national one is more like, pedi- like not pedagogy, more basic like content. Content. And then this the state one is more pedagogy. It is huge. Um, yeah. NCSS was a lot of fun. I got to hang out with some people from like social studies chat on Twitter Oh, that's cool. And um, do an unconference with them. But it, it was pretty impressive. The whole thing was – and it was in D.C., so it was I, pretty cool. I've never been to the national one. Yeah. But I really enjoy the Texas one. It's always been very interesting to me. My first couple of years going, it was really good. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like I got a lot from it. And now after going for so many years, you know, it's kind of the same presenters. They still bring new information right. and it's still valuable, but you take a little bit less from it every time just because you learned last time you went. And mm-hmm. so... Um, well, we talked before the show like that you're at the stage where you're kind of mastering your craft. And so if you go into a presentation and you can there's 15% of it that you've never seen or heard before. That's a good day. Yeah, it is. Um, whereas a brand new teacher is going to go in and their minds, yeah. it's going to be like drinking from a, a For sure. fire hose. Yeah. My favorite session was um, 
John Lovett and Tyler Adams from Denton, Denton yeah. ISD, which is up near my hometown, by the way, of Mesquite, Texas. Actually, it's closer to my hometown of McKinney, Nuh-uh. Texas. You're from McKinney? Yeah. I feel like maybe we've talked about this before. We have. We've I just don't listen. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they presented, and their um, philosophy on teaching eighth grade content is very interesting. They teach it subject-based. I'm not saying that right. Concepts. Concept-based. So they have seven units of study that are not taught in a traditional uh, chronological order. Mm-hmm. And so they, um, I think one of their units is like movement, and they talk about the movement of the settlers of the uh, American colonies, and then they move into Manifest Destiny mm-hmm. and all the settlers that paste that. But what we really liked, I thought, was the relevancy part, where they yeah. tied it to modern-day movement or immigration. Right. And so their their um, their takeaway from that was their kids now no longer ask, why do we need to know this? Right. Which I think is what we've all been asked, and we've all kind of sometimes maybe at points questioned why we're teaching this to kids. And I really like the way they do theirs with that. Now, you found that with 5Es that you can do the same thing a little bit with some relevancy, and that's yeah. how you structure your classes. Well, that was always my struggle was why does it matter? Mm-hmm. And – you know, I think that as historians, sometimes we um, forget that kids are bored out of their mind because mm. we love it so much. Right. And that's a great thing. I never want to take that away from a teacher is their passion for their content. But what you have to understand is is that the kids may not have that same passion as you. And if you don't make a connection to them and their lives, then it's really a waste of your time. Right. And that's, that's what we're always trying to do is, and we've talked about this a lot with trying to, even if it's just a do now or a warm up or anything like that, tie it to the kid's personal life if yeah. we can, if at all possible. That's not always easy. Um, what's funny is uh, a couple of weeks ago I had the idea, I, I kind of just wanted to jot down looking at the Jim, uh, Jim Crow laws, the uh, apartheid laws, and the uh, German Nazi laws against Jewish people. Okay. And I literally just went and copy and pasted from the web onto three slides and didn't really ha- have anything else to do with it. But I showed it to some sixth grade teachers that I I had, that I work with. Mm-hmm. And they used it, which I was kind of like, oh no, what'd you do? Because I didn't have anything down. Like it wasn't finished. It was just a rough draft. Anyway, they, they had the kids compare and do Venn diagrams and talk through it. And some of the kids tied it to Harry Potter. What? Right, which I'm not a huge Harry Potter nerd. My daughter's that in our family, but the, <laughs> there's a section in the book where they have a version of those kinds of laws. Wow. That's pretty cool. That's really cool. Yeah, so um, I don't that's know. That's really, really cool. It was, it was good to hear that the kids were doing that themselves. Well, that's always my big push, and you know that. We've talked about that, and if you know me, you know I'm obsessed with 5Es, and the reason that I love 5Es is that is that it gave me a way to make that connection for kids. Right. Because what I found was is that at the end of the day, these kids don't care about passing the STAR test. And why should they? They really shouldn't. The STAR test is is to assess how I did Mm -hmm. as a teacher. Did I do my job? And then, but what's really important is that the kids take away from this something that is meaningful to them and it inspires them in their adult lives to participate in the government and to have an understanding of how the country came to be and how it um how power in government was created and all of that so um i really enjoyed their session i I know you snuck in like to their session and you were sitting at the back and i didn't know that at first and i turned and looked at you and the whole time we were like 
these are our had people. eyes and we were like yes these people are our type type of people yeah. so we need to get with them and maybe do a podcast episode or something we kind of talked with them about that yeah. right i went to a session and i'm going to butcher her last name uh jenny ganoa i believe which i can do that because of my last name um and it was reading for history and it was just a lot of really simple reading strategies that you can do to help kids just get through some of the material because we do have to have them do that and it's whether it's being put in an anticipation guide at the top before reading or do mm-hmm. a visual summary after they've done a summarization part themselves. Um, just really cool stuff to look up. And so if, if you ever get a chance to listen to her, um, she's got some really effective ways to just kind of augment some of the things that teachers that may already, already be doing. doing. Probably yeah. so. Cool. All right, so we are on to kind of, uh, after about 12 minutes, we're finally to what we're going to talk about today, and it's the Constitutional Convention. Woohoo! So, a couple weeks ago, you did the block activity we talked about last time. Obsessed. That Articles of Confederation? So good. It yeah. went better than I could have ever imagined. So, I was able to see your last period class. Yes. And uh, a good group of kids. Woo! It gets feisty. <laughs> it gets feisty. If you're going to do this activity, just be prepared because the whole purpose of the activity is to show how unstructured it is right so for it to show how unstructured it is it's got to get unstructured right i mean it was intense i had a kid one in one of my class periods he came up to me and he's like miss they're taking my blocks they're taking my blocks now i just looked at him and i was like oh man i was like i don't know what to, to do about that right and he was so mad he was like what do you mean you're the teacher you're supposed to know what to do tell them and I was like, oh, I can't tell them. I'm so sorry. It's not in the rules. Right. And as we've been learning about the Articles of Confederation, <laughs> like it just played into it so much better than I could have ever imagined it going. It was so great. Well, and so every class was different, right? Every class was different. But the overall, sh- the, the failures showed but, up pretty quickly, right? Yeah, but every class did the same thing. First of all, none of them ever voted to help each other out. Which... I think that's the, kind of the key, right? So uh, we, we'll back up a little bit. The idea is that you have different groups of different sizes getting blocks, and they're supposed to build a strong fort that will last through the round. Now, eighth graders here strongest. Exactly. And so they don't listen. They don't listen, and eventually Massachusetts has a farm, you know, farmer rebellion, mm-hmm. and they have to. They can't do anything until everybody else decides to vote to help them, and they have to give away a block. Well, obviously, none of the other groups no. can give theirs away. And I made mine be unanimous. Right. And none of them voted yet, you know. And they all made each other, they made enemies with each other. Yep. And then when they needed each other, they got mad. And they were like, well, you didn't help us last time. And yeah. it just got to be crazy awesome. Well, once Massachusetts fell out, any other ask, any, any other things that would help anybody, they were not doing. No, no. They voted no on everything. Which was And awesome. they started to sell their blocks uh-huh. because I told, you know, we had arbitrary money and it's kind of complicated, but we can, we can send you the lesson if you just give us a shout out on Twitter. I think we shared it on Twitter as well, but Did we'll we? share it again. Yeah, um, it was so good. It was good. I had a kid who still every day, like for a, the last week, he comes in and he's like, I'm still mad. Yeah. I'm still mad about that game. And, I mean, it is a game, but he still remembers it. And so he's mad about the Articles of Confederation. That's why I tell him, I said, you should be fired up because the Articles of Confederation were messed up. Well, that's good. If he's still mad about it, he means he connected with it, <laughs> yeah. right? 
And it was so good. The people I work with get it. I mean, I just repeat, it's like over and over again. If kids walk out of social studies mad because of the content and the discussions, then it's a good day. Yeah, it's true. They're they're engaged. So the the const- the reason we talk about that is because now you still have that that background experience when you get to the constitutional mm-hmm. convention. And we talked about with the articles, you know, you talk about having kids look at it from the standpoint of when I'm an adult or when I'm a parent, I'm not going to do this. Right. So it's kind of that same thing as when I'm creating a new government, I'm not going to do this. And so to kind of a little bit of a background on this, the the idea of the convention needed, uh, con- I'm sorry, the idea of the Constitutional Convention needing to take place um, began pretty early on with the Annapolis Convention. Nothing really happened. Five states showed up. Nobody, nothing was decided except, hey, we're going to meet again later on uh, the next year. Uh, but there was a big event that took place in between there, and that was... Shays Rebellion. Shays Rebellion. And Shays Rebellion was a, a farmer's a rebellion where they couldn't pay their debts. They couldn't, uh, they sold the land that they had been given for pennies on the dollar. And Massachusetts loses complete control of these soldiers. And there's nobody that's going to help them. Right. And the kids obviously get that when you talk about Massachusetts again and the, the Artists Confederation. But then you get to the showing up in Pennsylvania and who's going to show up and who's not going to show up and what are they supposed to do? Well, rumor was that after the Annapolis Convention, they, you know, they sent out their invitations to what they called the, they were calling at the time the Federal Convention, right? Right. Because they didn't know that it was going to turn into the Constitutional Convention. Correct. They send out their invitations and they set the date, but nobody was planning on going, just like nobody planned on going to the Annapolis Convention. Right. But then Shay's Rebellion happens. And that is used as propaganda by many of the people who wanted the Federalists, the stronger federal government, to convince people to, hey, you need to be coming to this federal constitution. we got to fix some stuff. Well, it really all comes down to Washington, right? Because Washington had meant he was done. He was done with public life. He wanted to stay at home and not really get too involved. He turned down public offices before. Um, he was just there to kind of take care of his plantation and, and move on. And even he saw that there was an issue with Shays Rebellion and decided that I, I probably should show up and help out. But he really, Madison kind of banked on him and told a lot of people that he was going to show up. And Madison was not certain he was ever going to show up. Yeah. And so the fear at the time was a, a lot of things. One is they just declared independence from England. They're all expecting England to come back at any moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're waiting for another war, which is why the War of 1812 is called the Second War of Independence. It's kind of the the second act, in their opinion. Right. Um, there's a lot of fear of armed conflict. There had been arguing, you know, Maryland and Virginia had been fighting over the Potomac River. Um, you have Shays' Rebellion. Um, and there's a fear of small confederations popping up. A lot of, like, the, the New England states mm-hmm. joining together and creating mm-hmm. their own country, or New York just separating and creating its own country. And so there was a lot of uncertainty, and everybody was starting to recognize the Articles of Confederation either need to be completely changed or amended. Right. Nobody really knew where they were going with that at the time. And so they meet in Philadelphia. Okay. And you had said that Madison got there early, right? I think so. So James Madison is kind of the, he's considered the father of the Constitution. He's the one who's the driving figure of this. Mm -hmm. A lot of that is because he kept notes. Now, a lot of the uh, members of the convention kept notes. Yes, but he kept the most He kept the notes. Notes, notes. Now, I was listening the other day, and there was conversation that he had done a lot of editing of his notes later on in life. I believe it. Because, you know, as he gets older, James Madison's sort of a uh, 
anti-federalist. Mm-hmm. He's against the Constitution, or I guess more probably more pro-states' rights. But originally, he's the Federalist. Like, he is one of the key Federalists. Yeah, so he, him and Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Hamilton is the original Federalist, and they have to rein him back a little bit because he gets a little too out of control with his proposals and right. his philosophical ideas of what, what should go on. But Madison, from everything I've heard, so Madison was a big voice in the Annapolis Convention, and the convention even bef- the meeting even before that between Maryland and Virginia over the Potomac. And the trade and all of that. And two summers before the federal convention, Madison decided to take it upon himself to do some research. And he started looking into confederations over history. Mm-hmm. And he basically kept a tally of all the positives and all the negatives of these confederations. What did they do right and what did they do wrong? And he kind of came to the conclusion that a confederation will not last. Right. And so he he brings this idea to the Annapolis Convention, hoping that they're going to start talking about changing the Articles of Confederation. Well, only five states up states show up, so that's out the window. But he does convince them to at least have a larger meeting at the Federal Convention uh, the next year. Right. And so he takes it upon himself then to continue his um, his education and continue learning, and he basically drafts multiple proposals of how he envisions. The government going and so he gets there first almost a month before everyone else maybe there were a few other delegates there right and he's really impatient waiting and waiting and waiting and so he's continuing his research and when when it begins he already has an idea of where he wants the government to go well he's ready to manipulate things yeah. other because other people he, are... and he has to do it secretively because everyone knows he's a federalist right well and, they, they yeah and everyone knows that, well, by federalist, I mean a nationalist. Nationalist. He wanted the national government to be stronger. Most people knew that. And so he's having to use alternative routes to kind of manipulate the situation to slowly start poking his ideas into. Right. And so they meet in Philadelphia at the Pennsylvania State House, which is now Independence Hall. And so who's there? Well, we know Washington shows up, which is huge because right. he gives legitimacy to this convention. Correct. Because nobody's going to arrest Washington. So does Franklin. So does Franklin. But nobody's going to arrest Washington. Nobody's going to accuse him of being a traitor. Right. And so he gives them a, a, just a, a huge uh, support uh, f- from this people, if you would. Makes sense. Never thought about it that way. Then you have Madison, obviously. You have uh, George Mason, who I have an affinity for. I bet um, you do. Well, I mean, I, I'm a Bill of Rights guy. You know, I used to not. I used to just teach George Mason as a checkbox on my teaks. Right. Like, George Mason, he's the booger that refused to sign the Constitution. <laughs> right. And after doing more learning about him, like, I really have a lot of respect for Mason. Right. Well, and he, everything he was worried about has come true. To, to, to light. Yeah, absolutely. So, so who is it there? Patrick Henry doesn't go. Of course, the whole, you know, I smell a rat tending towards. Well, he's towards... the governor at the time, isn't he? Uh, Virginia? He? I just know that he, he was, he was concerned. It would have been, that sounds about right. Yeah, I think it is. Him or Edmund Randolph? No, it wasn't Edmund yet. It was it was Patrick Henry. I thought Edmund Randolph. Never mind. I don't know. I know Patrick Henry was the governor at the time. Well, he gets he is he is concerned about what's going on. Um, now everybody kind of confuses that Jefferson wasn't there. You know why, why wasn't Jefferson there? Well, he's in France, right? Living through the the French life, the, the French life, and getting ready for the French Revolution mm-hmm. and living in his existential Viva Liberty. world. Yeah, yeah, the whole. Uh, Hanging out with his best friend there, Marquis. The Marquis, Marquis yeah. Marquis Lafayette. Yeah. Jefferson, I don't know. You got to stop. 
So then you have John Adams. Not, <laughs> John Adams is not there as well. He's in Correct. England. He is probably one of the biggest supporters of the Constitution because he's dealing with the English side of things, and mm-hmm. they're just ignoring anything that upsets Anything that he presents to them, they're like, why would we want to change things? Mm-hmm. And they're happy to ignore him. And John Adams is not a patient man. Um, and so he does not handle that very well. And so... And Franklin's there. Did Franklin's there. Franklin? No, we did not mention Franklin. How do we drop Franklin? I don't know. But he brings he brings a level of sophistication to it as well. Franklin's one of the most famous Americans at this point. He is the Just, most worldwide too yeah i mean when when he went across to france he was the most famous but, but I mean, that's from the lightning rod and all yeah. of his, his i mean studies. it was it was difficult on him to be there because it was extremely hot and mm-hmm. he has gout and is on the struggle bus with his health in general yeah they i, I think if you've ever i think s- he referred to it as the struggle bus if i remember correctly they had a sedan <laughs> chair that carried him around yes. town he couldn't <laughs> even walk so he had, he had convicts franklin <laughs> like thank you franklin for your civic virtue civic virtue right so that's where a lot of this comes from that's that teak that's kind of a struggle for teachers the Washington and Franklin are the kind of ideas of civic virtue and, and sacrificing personally to improve the country, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and the good thing is, is Franklin also is able to calm people down. He's pragmatic and able to, yes, you can want to push these things through, but you've got to make sure that you, you know, you got to caress these things through and you got to talk to people and make sure that we're listening to everybody and that's kind of one of the things that he helps. Well, and Franklin, like, is an interesting case to me because he was one of the first people in America to push for a confederation. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Albany plan was his plan during the French and Indian War that he pushed. Right. He, he pretty much drafted an early version of the Articles of Confederation. It got shut down. And so him being there is just, just shows that, like, the seriousness of the issues that were going on with the Articles of Confederation. Right. The first thing they have to decide is, are they going to amend the Constitution or, I'm sorry, not amend the Constitution, amend the Articles of Confederation or completely redo it? And there's, they don't really know what they can do. Some people say we can start all over. Some people think they can only amend the Constitution, uh, the Articles. I've got to stop doing that. <laughs> and there's this back and forth. And Madison proposes the Virginia Plan. And we're not going to get too much into that, but... They kind of quickly decide, all right, we'll look at redoing this whole thing. Right. Well, the struggle I think that they had was in 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 the intention of the meeting, it said for the purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation, right? But the problem is in order to revise and amend, you got to have a unanimous vote. Which we missed you over because Rhode Island's not Rhode there. Because Rhode Island's not there. And so they can't go about amending the Articles of Confederation because that would be against the rules. So they instead just decided to throw the whole thing out, I guess, and well, start from scratch. But then they also have their directives from their state government saying, make good government. Yeah. Well, what is, the, what, I mean, and, and that's said to Hamilton, by the way, and if Hamilton sees an opening, he's going to mm-hmm. take it, right? You know it. And yeah. so. They, and two, also, like the Articles of Confederation, if you ever look at it, that thing is impossible to amend. It is straight up. Not a constitution, in my opinion. It doesn't look like a constitution. It's not a, it's not a well-written one. It's just rules. It's just a list of rules. Step one, this is our purpose. Step two, this is what you can and cannot do. It doesn't actually set forth a legitimate structure, and it would be too complicated to go in and advise, and, um, what am, what's amend, amend or it. Change, change, revise it. it. So Madison knows that he can't propose a Virginia plan, so he gets his buddy from Virginia, Edmund Randolph to do that. 
mm-hmm. the Virginia plan is uh, a system that has three branches of government. And originally there is two branches in the legislature. One is directly elected by the people and the other is elected by those individuals. Hold on. So first the people elect their representatives and then those representatives elect another more house. representatives. Yes, another house of con- Congress, if Got you it. would. Um, and, you know, I don't know if that's actually the state governments to do that, like the Senate originally was written, or if it is actually that national one. It would probably be the state one. And it's not something we're going to teach too much because you're just going to talk about it, how really the thing we're looking for with kids to understand here is that the national legislature representation was based on population. So the more people a state had, the more votes they had in Congress. Under the Virginia plan. Under the Virginia plan. Okay. Under the Articles of Confederation, it was one state, one vote. Right. So this and was a huge one, change. And there was one house, unicameral. Right. So this would be bicameral, and both houses would be based on state population. State population, which goes along with taxation without representation, mm-hmm. or taxation with representation, I guess. You'd right. have the kids talk about that, and is this a fair plan? Right. Um there would be an executive branch, but uh, they didn't really iron out everything. But it appeared that that would have been uh, elected by the the two state, I mean, the two national congresses. The so no houses. judicial branch. There was a national judiciary branch okay. that would have been created, but um, they don't get too much into that. The specifics are kind of hazy. And the idea was, and, and a lot of people were talking about this. The idea, according to Randolph, was let's have a, a broad idea, and then we can work out the details later. As on. we go, yeah. And so, really, the kids need to understand that representation, though, was based on population. Right. And and also, one important fact is when they start this convention, it's really just a series of proposals. Right. So, every state kind of takes their opportunity that has come prepared to stand up and give their proposals. And then all those proposals will then be considered once they've all been heard. And so, then you have those leading questions of, well, you know, who would this benefit? Who would this hurt? You know, things like that. And there are, hopefully the kids recognize the small states. That's a difficult recognition for it's them. It's hard. Uh, and you have to talk the about— The small states? You're talking about the Virginia plan? No, I'm talking about who would be hurt by this oh, plan. Oh, okay. Got you. Who gotcha. would be hurt by this plan. Okay. And so—and and, but and benefit from it either way. You would, But you would really want them to make that connection to small states being against this. And that kind of leads us into the New Jersey plan. Um, and they have a one house in, in their legislature, and it is based on one state, one vote. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, you're asking questions of the kids. How do you how do you come up with this? Um, I've always wondered presenting this to kids is kind of a struggle because you have to tell they have to know a lot of this information. Yeah, it's hard to make it. It's hard to make it inquiry and student based because it's so complex. So I wonder, you know, I talk a lot about prediction notes where you have multiple choices that the kids can choose from. You could almost have the same set of notes, but then have the kids broke up into small states and large states. So kind of a mini, a mini smaller version of a constitutional convention and let the, let the kids argue over which one of those choices is best. So that's kind of what we do. We do an activity called response groups. Okay. And um, we start with the first issue issue critical issue a Mm -hmm. and it kind of gives them a reading passage they read critical issue a and they select from four options and they rank them from what they feel would be best and then second third fourth to worst right and then they hear what actually happened right and they take notes over that in a graphic organizer that's a good idea because they're engaged because they want to be right they want to have had their right answer and so they'll kind of they'll be on their the edge of their seat trying to find out what the right answer was um, so anyway, this New Jersey plan, um, 
was obviously not going to happen. The, the larger states were not going to have that. And so eventually you get to what's the Great Compromise, or sometimes called the Connecticut Compromise. I don't think it's really important that kids know that it's called the Connecticut Compromise. No. Uh, but it's our current form of government. Three branches. You know, you have two houses where the House of Representatives is directly elected by the people, if you will. And then the Senate uh, is each state gets two votes. Mm -hmm. And at the time, the state legislatures elected senators. It wasn't the people electing senators. Uh, there will be an executive branch, with a pre uh, eventually with the president, and then a judiciary branch where there's a Supreme Court, if you will, and smaller federal courts. Um, and that's really, the kids need to see that the compromise is the, the thing, that the, the two sides came together to solve an issue. Right. Um, and that's really, there's tons of compromises that take place in this convention. Uh, we're not going to get into everything about state militias and who's in control of the militias and any of that stuff. This is just a big one that the kids can wrap their heads around, and it help, le help leads into when you get to the Constitution unit. I think one thing that you probably should focus in on when you start this unit is why is representation in this branch so important to them? Right. So you're getting them to tie it back to the road to revolution and such? Yeah. So you can tie it back to that, but just, I mean, the basic idea of, okay, they're about to start arguing about how many representatives they have in the government. Right. First of all, remember what a representative is. Second of all, why would you want more representatives there representing you and your opinions mm -hmm. than another group? Like, how is that going to benefit you? And if you can start with that, then they can understand why they're arguing over all these issues. Okay. Maybe. I don't know. No, it's a good idea. And I also think, you know, thinking back to some of our past episodes, you know, we originally talked about introducing popular sovereignty and limited government uh, in the first part of the year, especially when you're talking about the new colonies you can bring those back in and you know when the people elect the members of the house of representatives what's that an example of yeah and see if the kids can make that connection which yeah. they should be able to but that's why you're building that foundation throughout all those units mm -hmm. so the next major compromise is the three-fifths compromise and this is all about how who do we count who mm -hmm. counts towards representation and obviously, this is where we start to see the slave issue start to pop up. Uh, we are working on a slave issue, uh, a slave uh, edition of this podcast. We're just uh, making sure we cross all of our T's and dot all of our I's. Yeah, we got to make sure we present the truth and have a well-rounded podcast on that one. Right. But anyway, so the states, obviously the slave states are going to want slaves to count. Right. And the idea is that representation should be based off of how much you, how much tax money you spend, how much tax money you send to the national government. And that gels with the idea of taxation and representation, right? Well, here's the thing. I don't know. What came first? Was the issue of slaves being counted as representation, did that come first? Or did the issue of slaves being counted for taxation come first? Well, I think your, your your northern states primarily wanted them counted towards taxation. See, I don't know how it was introduced. Right. I need to go back and read that because I've always taught it as, okay, and this might be me admitting fault here and needing to go back and relearn. And, oh, we and don't know. I don't know everything. I, I don't admit that willingly. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Of course, I don't know everything. But I've always taught it like this, right? So now that we're done talking about representation, the South didn't get everything that they wanted. They were trying to, mono not in a negative way, but they want, it's all about power. It's right. all about who has the biggest slice of the pie. 
And so the South didn't get the biggest slice of the pie that they wanted. They had to compromise and create a bicameral. Because remember, they bring the Virginia plan, which is right. going to largely favor big states, which all the Southern states are highly populated states. So now that they have to give up one of those houses to be, you know, the New Jersey plan, um, they're trying to figure out a way that they can increase their number of representatives so that they can have a bigger slice of the pie, right? Right. So they get the idea of including slaves for this representation. And so the North then is saying, well, wait a second. You're saying that slaves aren't people, and but now all of a sudden they're counting as representation. Right. So then if they count as representation, then we should be able to tax you for that. It's kind of a chicken and egg thing. But I don't know which came first. I don't know. That's I need to do more more research. See, so the thing is, and that's the one thing we need. I guess we didn't do very well in the compromise, the Great Compromise portion. The South threatened to walk out. Yeah, I mean, and this is not this is not. Oh, here you get what you want, and you yeah. and we get what we okay. They were like about to make enemies for life on right. some of this. Well, and that's the thing with the Great Compromise. The, the small state said the the Virginia Plan is not a. We're not accepting that any right. of it. And the Virginia plan, the, Virgi- the larger state said the same thing. We're not going to accept the smaller one. And eventually they compromised. Go, oh, we can live with this. Right. And so. But that took time. And it took, it took a break. They had to take, decompress a little bit. That room is hot and nasty and gross. Well, we didn't really talk about that. You know, they, they did all of their discussions in secret. Yeah. So that they were worried that political uh, enemies would use that against them. They even uh, they shut the, the windows of the Pennsylvania State House, mm-mm, um, mm-mm. and these guys are wearing wool. In, yeah, and they're in like full, you know, seventeen hundreds garb. And it's it's the summer. Ooh, southern uh, and in Philadelphia. Have you yeah. ever been to Philadelphia it's in hot. the summer? It is nasty. It's more humid than Texas sometimes. Well, I don't know about that, but ooh, it's bad. Ooh, and so they have to uh, they have to figure out what they're going to do. And they end up coming up with this three-fifths compromise, or I always refer to it three-fifths, 60% rule for my kids. Um, this where, is where proportions come into play right? in social studies. They can pull your math nerds in. Yeah, I don't know. I try to <laughs> avoid the math departments. Just kidding. Um, but the three-fifths compromise, and it says it's uh, slave populations... Uh, in the state, 60% of those will be counted towards representation and count towards taxation. So both sides get a little bit of what they want and both sides have to give in a little bit, which is going to disproportionately benefit the southern states, the, the large slave states, because they're going to dominate the uh, the electoral college. And most of our early presidents are from the, the south, mm-hmm. um, you know, except for the, the Adams it's going to be a while until Jeff, uh, Jackson, actually, that most of them are in the South. And the reason I bring this up is because this is, I like to talk about this progression as we move along of the slave states starting to lose that electoral college, that House of Representatives control that they originally had as more immigrants start coming to the United mm, States. Interesting. That's why they go to the North, and the Northern states benefit from this greatly. Because well, and once the northern states become industrialized, their population is going to boom as well. Well, and so what that leads to is the southern states, or the primarily the slave states, recognizing we'll never catch them in the House of Representatives. So the only way to prevent any laws coming about in the future to limit slavery is to add senators. There's only one way to add senators. you got to add new states. Yeah. And where are we going to go get new states at? We're going to go west. Interesting. So it is a political effect or a cause and effect of manifest destiny. So let me ask you this. 
do you think that the three without the three fifths compromise that slavery would have ended sooner in our country? Uh, I don't know that. I don't think they kept it for political reasons alone. I mean, it was an economic reason, really. From my understanding, they all expected slavery to die. They they saw slavery as a an institution that was not going to be something that was long lived in the United States. Mm-hmm. And then you have the uh, the invention of the cotton gin and the ability to use the uh, the the cotton that grows well in southern United States. And that just throws that whole thing out the window, which is another compromise at the time was the slave trade compromise. Um, the northern states, that, that they still had slaves, but they didn't have very many, wanted to ban the slave trade. Nobody spoke well of the slave trade. Slave traders themselves and people who owned auction houses were wealthy, but they were not respected. They were right. kind of those people, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so... The northern states proposed that they ban the slave trade, just bringing in importing slaves. Uh, the southern states said, "Give us twenty years, and then we'll we'll talk about it." So Congress can't even bring it up for twenty years. It's it's one of the big compromises that comes out of that. And then in eighteen oh seven, they banned the uh, importation of slaves in the United States um, legally. By the way. Mm-hmm. But not the actual, they can still sell within the states. They can sell within the states. They can own slaves. They just can't bring any more legally from Africa or the Caribbean. Nice. All right. So the the Constitution is eventually accepted by most members of Congress. But at the last minute, my man George Mason says no. (laughs) Now, he was part of the Virginia Plan uh, supporters. And Mm -hmm. he said uh, at the last minute, and I don't know why he waited so long, he brings up this Bill of Rights. Or a lack of Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, let's let's go ahead and add this. And people were frustrated with him. So Mason refuses to sign it. And I believe Edmund Randolph does as well. Okay. But it passes unanimously through the uh, the different group, the, the whole Congress, the whole right. convention. All 12 states. And so they know that they can't send it to the Confederation Congress because the Confederation Congress isn't going to accept something of its own demise. Correct. So they, they do the smart thing, and they say they're sending it to the people. So they send it to each state and let the states ratify. And so each state's legislature receives a copy. Correct. And they debate it. Correct. And they vote. And whether they're going to accept it or not. Correct. And how many states have to do that? I don't know. I think it's nine. We're going to go with nine. Okay, nine. And so it is sent around, and it gets a lot of states accept it pretty quickly. Um, but there's a lot of fighting that takes place between these two groups that pop up. We've referred to one as the Federalist, and the group that's against them, which they're not very creative, are called the Anti-Federalists. Correct. And our Federalists are made primarily of uh, Madison, Hamilton, and John Jay. And our Anti-Federalists are mostly Mason with Patrick Henry involved. Mm-hmm. Jefferson a little bit, but again, he's across the pond. Right. If- I don't usually ju- lump Jefferson in there with them. No, but he, he he's a little bit involved. And they get kind of nasty. Yeah. But the Federalists have one thing on their side. They own the newspapers. And Mm. so anybody that says that the media is more biased than it's ever been in history. Wrong. Well, it is biased, by the way. Yeah. It's always been that way. Correct. Because it's the purpose of. Well, and it's owned by the people. Well, it's owned by people who want to make money and they'll sell what they can sell. Yeah. Or they're going to push their own agendas. If you owned a company, wouldn't you want to do what was best for you? I think that's the way it goes, right? Uh, That's called free enterprise. Right. But we don't like it for some reason when it comes to the news. Anyway, 
So most of the newspapers are owned by the Federalists, and they you have um, Jefferson. I'm sorry, you have Madison and Hamilton writing a ton of these Federalist papers. Right. Um, do you have any recommendations for teachers to have let their kids look at, or just? So we, uh, my kids read Federalist Fifty One and Federalist Ten. Those are the two most famous. Okay. Federalist Ten. Oh God, you're making me quote it right now. No, not quote it, but just. Federalist 10 talks about separation of powers and checks and balances, I believe, and the purpose behind that. And then Federalist 51 talks about um, majority rule and the idea of dividing that up, if I'm correct. I might go back and fact check and um, edit this. We'll let them do that. Yeah. No, no. I'll go with fact check. (laughs) Hey, listeners. It's Lindsay. I did go back and fact check the... um, Federalist Papers, and Federalist 10 talks about the division of power into factions to avoid the um, tyranny of the majority, written by James Madison. And then Federalist 51, we're not sure if it was Madison or Hamilton who wrote it, but that's the one that talks about separation of powers and checks and balances and how that system is structured to work. So there you go. And then also, if you're going to... but. We do the Federalist Papers, but we mostly have the kids read the Anti-Federalist point of view because there are, oh, let me, my, let me get my stuff straight. The Constitution gets ratified. And so it's just natural for us to say, this is why we ratified it and not look at the negative of why people didn't want it ratified. And I think that that's very important because a lot of what's going on in the, in the Anti-Federalist essays, which they don't actually call them that, but in the publications that the Anti-Federalists put out speaks to what's still happening in our country today. And nobody's ever read, not very many people read those because they focus on the Federalist Federalist Papers, which the Federalist Papers are phenomenal. And you should read them. As a history teacher, you should have read at least 10 and 51 for sure. Um, I think 50, I think both of those were written by Madison. Okay. I need to double check that. But we have the kids read um, one of the Brutus essays and i think it's brutus one just excerpts right no i have my kids do like an annotated study and i can send you the the if you want to tweet me you're listening to this and you want it i can send you the link for the um activity for that but they do it for homework they read it they annotate out to the side there's room in the columns to write and they answer some critical thinking questions and then we come to class and do a padilla seminar over it and discuss it's really interesting the kids um really enjoy doing it sounds like a future podcast maybe Maybe. Maybe. Ooh, that's a good idea. Yes. So getting them to see both sides is perfect. And it goes into that skills continuum and mm-hmm. that, those skills teaks at the end of our uh, unit plans. Um, but the big thing for the Anti-Federalists is they're pushing for what? A Bill of Rights. A Bill of Rights. And so you have nine states that are pretty quick to ratify it, except mm-hmm. there's two problems. New York doesn't ratify it, and Virginia doesn't ratify it right away. Right. Now, Hamilton is kind of on his own in New York, um, and he has to he's, – he's pretty he's pretty shrewd politician. <laughs> and he knows that as soon as Virginia ratifies it, that New York's going to fall in line. And so he does a couple things. Um, first, he, he makes a proposal in their constitutional convention ratification um, group that they have to discuss basically every item in the Constitution and approve it or not approve it. And he reads it out loud slowly and takes forever and is just delaying, delaying, delaying. Sounds like Hamilton. Brilliant, though. And then he also put out the idea that maybe New York City would secede from New York State, which would cut off New York State from 
ocean uh, ocean access. Again, all rumors, very shrewd politician. And lo and behold, Virginia does ratify because it is promised that they will add a Bill of Rights when the new Congress comes together. So we can pretty much thank the state of Virginia for giving us a Bill of Rights. Well, because it's George Mason who is is from Virginia. And he is in the Legislative Assembly in Virginia. Right. And he is one of the people who pushes, we must have a Bill of Rights. And Madison's there with him because Madison's from Virginia. Yep. And Madison says, fine, Mason, I'll write the Bill of Rights. He drafts it. Originally, it was, what, 17? 12. I think it was 12. 12? 12. 12 rights. And they narrow it down to 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is promised that once it's ratified, the first 10 amendments will be approved within a, a couple of years. One, his fear is that this, this the whole fear of this new constitution is it's going to take away the rights of the people and take away the rights of the states. And so anti-federalists want the power to remain in the states. They don't trust this stronger national government. And so that's the kind of a theme today. It's going to be a theme that continues on and on, mm-hmm. especially through the Civil War. Yeah. And so kind of stress that. Get kids to understand that they weren't just saying no because they were pouting. They were saying no because they had real fears. And right. that's why they read the Anti-Federalist documents. That's why I that, – yeah, that's why I focus on that because they were right. Mm-hmm. They were right. Thank goodness for George Mason. Right. I'm glad that he's your main person that you like. I'm a Bill of Rights guy, and he – he I was mean, proven he, right. He was the one who wrote the Virginia Declaration of Rights, mm-hmm. which kind of started the whole. That's one of our models that we used for the Bill of Rights in 1776. That was released for Virginia. So, I mean, he's a big deal. Don't just don't just scrape over him like you. He, you know, if you wrote the Bill of Rights, you'd want to be remembered. He's not just a guy. Yeah, and well, I he think- didn't write it. Let me make sure that you know that. Madison wrote it, but still. Well, and also, this kind of goes back to that English Bill of Rights. It goes back to Magna Carta. Make sure you're tying in Magna Carta to this. Make sure you're tying in those English Bill of Rights. And you can look examples, and they can kind of tie them together. Um, I'm always pushing card sorts, but it's just a quick way to get kids to organize their thoughts. Yeah, and the grievances. And And you can even connect the weaknesses of the Articles of Confederation as well. Yeah, these things didn't just happen on their own. Right. Everything was intentional, and that's what I tell my kids. Look, the Articles of Confederation had a lot of weaknesses, but it wasn't necessarily a mistake. We learned something from it. Right. And as we continue to grow as a nation, we are learning something from the, the things that we do wrong. Right. And that's I think that's what's most important is, you know, we learned from what the king did that if we create this new government and we don't have a Bill of Rights, government naturally is going to corrupt, corrupt and infringe on those rights. Power in government naturally grows. So eventually it's ratified. It is. By Virginia and All 13 New York. states eventually ratify it. Well, Rhode Island waits until George Washington has already become president. Yeah, Rhode Island's a which, Yeah, you know, whatever. Um, I, I don't, is Rhode Island even a place? I've never been there. I don't know anybody's <laughs> ever been there. <laughs> it's real. It's real. And so we have this new country and we have this new system of government that still has some things that need to be ironed out. It's like still the Bill being of ironed out now. Well, is it being ironed out or is it just... I don't know if we can ever iron out all it's the problems. It's always changing. Right. And that's the cool thing to teach kids is it's created, but it's a living document. It is always changing and adapting, not not always for what's good, but still it's always changing. So right. it's going to change. Every president leaves its their, their mark on the Constitution. Every Congress leaves their mm-hmm. mark on the Constitution. I feel like a lot of times we focus just on presidential history. Because today the president has so much power and not as much on congressional history. Like poor Henry Clay. Yeah. He never gets what he deserves. Like he was the longest standing congressman 
in American history. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. <laughs> You're terrible. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we don't give enough respect to congressional history. And legislature is supposed to be the strongest branch in our government, according to the Constitution. Yeah. And so the fact that we don't do it justice in the classroom is a problem to me. But we I'll, get off, time, I'll right? go ahead and get off my soapbox. We don't have the time, unfortunately. That's what everybody says. I know. But it's true. Well, it's just not emphasizing the teaks, to be yeah. honest with you. So anything that we've missed or anything, I, I feel like such a big, big unit. And I guess we keep saying, you know, this one's so important. This one's so important. And then this one is a big deal when you're talking about the future of the class, like where you're going in the classroom. Yeah. And this one's hard because government is a very abstract concept. Mm-hmm. Like I straight up know adults who don't understand the American government. Right. And to ask an eighth grader to learn it in 45 minutes every day is a high demand. It's very conceptual. It's well, hard. And so keep it simple. Focus when you're looking at the New Jersey plan and the Virginia plan of just the basics. Yeah. How many houses have Congress. I honestly I mean, don't talk about everything you said today. Really? Yeah. I just go into, when we promote the Virginia plan, I straight up focus on the legislative branch. Okay. Virginia wanted this. Yeah. They wanted it based on population. New Jersey wanted it based on equal. And that's it. I also go in and teach, I know it's not technically in the teaks, but I teach what does the legislative branch look like? And today, what does it look like? So, so you do it before the Constitution unit? During. Okay. So when we talk about the Virginia plan and then we talk about the Great Compromise, I tell them, okay, th- today we have two houses. One's the Senate, one's the House of Representatives. In the House of Representatives today, there's 435 members. That was decided by based on after they reconstructed yeah. the Capitol, how many chairs could fit into the room. And then they divvied it up amongst the population, which always is interesting to the kids. It's just a random – I mean, that's, that's how they figured that out. And then the Senate, you know, is – two per per state Mm -hmm. and we talk about like the purpose of those two and how they how the house of representatives is really to control the whims of the masses of people and so they're elected what every two years it's the senate's every six i'm sorry did i say senate i don't know the house is every two the The house is every two and the senate is every six so the senate is really the upper house right the upper chamber and um that's supposed to be more long-standing which is why the senate really has all the power well, the Senate's meant to represent the state. It's not really meant to represent the people. Well, yeah, because the people aren't really meant to be represented. Well, in the House of Representatives. Yeah, but the House of Representatives can't do nothing. Well, Let me rephrase. Cannot, is very weak. <laughs> and it's set up that way on purpose. A little bit. Well, I think they had recognized in the Articles of Confederation that there was too much democracy. Yeah. And they figured that this might be a little bit better, a better system. And, and they wanted to avoid the... Was it demagoguery? And- well, and the people get on these, we get on whims, right? So we have not not necessarily the whims, I'm not trying to be offensive, but like, for example, when one big issue becomes really pre- prevalent, people want to go in and change legislation. Well, the purpose is to make it more difficult to change legislation right. so that it's not constantly just every time that there's a new fad, legislation changes. Right. So the House of Representatives is the closest thing that we have to democracy and it they change every two years so if you are voting somebody in based on a recent fad right and that fad changes in two years you vote them out and so a lot of times i feel like as citizens we get upset with the house of representatives because they're not doing anything and they're created intentionally to do as little to do as little as possible and so that's the whole thing about this right is continuity of, of having a government that is changing hands and changing power 
continuously without violence. Right. I mean, and we'll talk more about that, you know, when the president dies and we just, the vice president just takes over. Yeah. And nobody dies. Right. There's like a chain. There's no shooting and killing and, you know, where there's. It's not like anarchy and we have to start all over every time. Right. It's set up intentionally to just flow. Right. Um, All right. I mean, that's kind of a weird spot to end. It is a weird spot to end. But. Do you have anything else? I don't know. I'm trying to think of fun facts, but I don't know if I have any fun. We pretty much said all the fun facts. The executive branch, they argued, right? Some people Mm -hmm. wanted three presidents. There was a there was a council that was proposed. There was the idea that elected kings. Um, Ridiculous. Well, and I think what was the president going to be called? Yeah, well, yeah, what was the president going to be called? And I think you know Hamilton uh, had talked about having similar monarchy system, and even the Senate they talked about having lifetime appointments. Yes. Once you were elected, you're there. Uh, kind of this uh, aristocracy. Um, sometimes I think people just toss stuff out there just to get it shot down. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was, this is really what I want. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that's the, that's the amazing thing about this. They just discussed it and have made a pretty, I mean, it's the longest, isn't it the longest running written constitution in the world? It could be. I know it's the longest standing democracy. No, I guess I can't say that. Well, I, the English system doesn't really have a written um, constitution. It's more of traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, what about Rome? Well, Was that a democracy? Well, no, not Oligarchy? for very long. Uh, it became a lot of different things. Yeah, I don't know enough. Started as a republic, history. and then it became. Sorry, Miss Evans. Shout out to my <laughs> high school she, history teacher. I don't think she wants that shout out. Now. <laughs> All right. So, uh, any ideas on our next podcast? Yeah. Um, Early Republic. No, Bill of Rights. You want to do Bill of Rights? Yeah, we got to do Bill of Rights. All right, Bill of Rights is my favorite. So we're going to just miss like, some of the Constitution stuff and just go to the Bill of Rights. Like how to teach the Bill of Rights. Love it. Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Yeah, and if you would, give us some feedback. Uh, and if you could, review us on iTunes, which is weird to say, and on Podbean. Pod, Podbean. Um, or wherever you listen. And share, share, share. And give us some feedback if, if you have some uh, issues with things that Lindsay said let her, <laughs> let her hear about it alright y'all take care bye hey there thanks for listening to our podcast join in the discussion on twitter using the hashtag past to present pod Do you have suggestions on how we can improve our podcast or topics you'd like to hear discussed? We would love to hear them. Give us a shout out on Twitter. Did you enjoy the show? Give us a rating and review on iTunes or Podbean. It only takes a minute and it will help other educators find our show. Special thanks to all those who helped develop the content for today's episode. Audio mixing for this episode done by Lindsay Stevens and music credit to bensound.com. All thoughts and ideas expressed in today's episode are that of the hosts and do not necessarily reflect the beliefs of KDISD.